of physiology and some respiratory pathologies. Sort of like a synopsis of some, some of the most important things that they need to know. On the slideshow. Hey guys! Bring it down, bring it in. Get mentally ready. This is uh, Dr. Uh, Joe Lilly from uh, from Pediatric Critical Care. Um, he's going to be kind of giving us a great overview here of uh, pediatric vents, pathophysiology, some peds respiratory issues. So, I mean, he came super highly recommended from back when Dr. McCoy was a resident <laughs> here. So, so let's give my attention and get, get ready to learn. Thank you for uh, inviting me. Uh, it's a pleasure to be here. Uh, Basically, what I decided to talk to you guys about uh, pediatric airway and uh, some of the uh, uh, things that you may encounter on a daily practice in the emergency department. Uh, if I, okay. So uh, basically, I put together uh, different sections or different uh, parts for this talk. And uh, I'll be talking about some of the uh, respiratory pathologies. I will show you some of the interesting slides uh, on pediatric uh, airway pathologies. And I will be talking about respiratory physiology and some basis, some touch bases on ventilator and mechanical ventilator support in pediatric medicine. Uh, first, uh, Okay. So, therefore, uh, we will be t uh, talking on the first uh, section of my talk. We'll, I'll show you some interesting pathologies, uh, of, uh, which, is our, which are specific to pediatric medicine, and you will not see it in adult, which I found to be interesting. And on the second part of the talk, I'll, I'll be talking about basic knowledge of respiratory pathophysiology. And on the third part, I will touch on mechanical ventilatory support. Uh, as you probably know, or you will find out during your uh, training in emergency medicine, pediatric uh, cardiopulmonary arrest is uh, essentially different from uh, cardiopulmonary arrest in adult medicine. Uh, in pediatric medicine, 90%, uh, maybe over 90% of the cases starts with respiratory causes, which will lead to uh, cardiac arrest as a secondary so cardiac arrest, uh, uh, cardiopulmonary arrest in pediatrics is caused by respiratory causes up to 90 and uh, over 90% of the uh, time. And maybe 10% of the causes uh, are related to primarily uh, cardiac origin. And uh, when cardiopulmonary arrest took place, uh, obviously, the patient will go into a state of shock, and it's the time when you start resuscitating the patient and all the things that you will do during a full cardiopulmonary arrest. And our aim and uh, uh, goal is to prevent uh, any patient uh, with respiratory difficulties or what, whatever cause to go on and uh, to get into cardiopulmonary arrest. 
Uh, this is the age distribution of uh, cardiopulmonary arrest in pediatric medicine. As you, uh, you will see based on these uh, graphics, the f most prevalent year of uh, cardiopulmonary arrest is uh, during the first uh, few years of life, mainly first six, first year and particularly the first six months of life. And uh, during that uh, period of time, uh, you have the highest incidence of cardiopulmonary arrest and uh, kids are much more susceptible. Uh, generally starts with respiratory and uh, hypoxia will lead to cardiac arrest and uh, eventually uh, uh, will require full resuscitative effort. As kids get older, uh, the uh, incidence of uh, cardiopulmonary arrest decreases until they get to about you know, teenage years, 14, 15 years of age, where uh, they uh, also start having uh, more incidence of cardiopulmonary arrest for a variety of reasons, which I may be able to touch on some of the causes. Uh, <clears throat> kids are essentially not just small adults. There are certain anatomic differences which exist uh, between an infant, child, and adult, which will help you to, uh, if you really understand the, the differences, will help you to uh, have a better grasp and insight into managing managing the pathophysiology which you may encounter on a daily practice in your emergency uh, room. Uh, <coughs> the different uh, characteristics that you may see uh, in pediatrics, not only there are some anatomic differences, they have also obviously different physiology. They are uh, more prone to apnea they have uh, periodic breathing, uh, particularly first six months of life. And uh, they uh, essentially uh, very easily can uh, block their airways, particularly their nose breather in the first few months of life. And that nose, being nose breather, just minor secretions or blocking or clogging of the nose can cause significant respiratory distress and uh, even l may lead to respiratory failure. By just the cleaning the uh, cleaning up the uh, suctioning up the nose and opening up the nose, you may be able to avoid uh, a catastrophe. And this has happened and is still happening, you know, particularly during RSV season. Uh, a lot of these infants come into the emergency department with significant distress, and if uh, you pay attention to uh, the airway, the upper airway in particular, and clean up the nose and uh, suction out the nose, you may avoid. Uh, uh, further uh, propagation of the disease and prevent patient from getting worse. So by just cleaning up and suctioning, you can actually uh, treat the patients. Uh, some of the interesting pathology that uh, you may not know, you will, see that you, you will see an infant, you will see a one-year-old child in your emergency department. On, on, the, on the gross and the appearance, patients look, appear to be intact without any problems. However, let's say you, end, you may have to intubate the patient or you, for a variety of reasons you may have to do some invasive procedure on that particular patient and then all of a sudden you find yourself with some major pathology which you had not anticipated. So just be aware of things that you may encounter in pediatric, particularly first few years of life that you may not see in an adult medicine. This is a good example of a patient who um, presented with uh, respiratory distress and ended up having coronal atresia of, uh, as you see, complete blockade of one 
nostril, and uh, partial blockade of the other one. And so this is very peculiar to pediatric medicine. And unless you think about it, unless you read about it, unless you've seen it, uh, you may not really uh, uh, cannot think about it. Uh, so this is very interesting. This is a, a patient, uh, a normal patient with uh, normal epiglo uh, epiglottis. Uh, the, uh, the difference between uh, adult and pediatric, uh, like I said, it's not just that uh, there are small adults. The differences exist in the anatomy of the airway, particularly the upper airway. The epiglottis is a more uh, floppy, more cephalid, and uh, 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 generally uh, you have to, when you intubate, when you want to intubate a, pa a pediatric patient, you need to really move that out of your way, be able to see the vocal cords. It's, uh, it's a big omega-shaped and very cephalid. And uh, so uh, unless you know the differences, uh, then you will not be able to um, visualize the vocal cord uh, by uh, doing some maneuvers that open up the airway. This is an uh, example of a patient with uh, acute epiglottitis. That was the previous slide shows, shows you a normal, epi epi normal epi uh, epiglottis. Uh, on, a, on an infant, and this one obviously shows a swollen uh, epiglottis in the case of acute uh, bacterial epiglottitis, which uh, you may or may not see nowadays uh, with the improved uh, vaccinations and uh, decreased incidence of uh, uh, Haemophilus influenza, you will see less. However, you still need to think about epiglottitis when you have a patient with upper airway croupy uh, uh, symptoms who uh, is not a norm, no, normal presentation. So one thing that you, you need to know in medicine, in particularly pediatric medicine, if anything out of ordinary, it just doesn't fit the classic description. You need to think, broaden your view and uh, differential diagnosis so that you won't miss anything or you f don't find yourself with surprises. So this is an example of epiglottitis. Still, we still see, th see them not necessarily due to uh, bacterial infection, but some viruses. Uh, we've been seeing some epiglottitis caused by viruses, and even uh, MRSA and MSSA recently has been reported. Other things that you may see uh, uh, of interesting, again, uh, in pediatric is uh, vocal cord paralysis. They may present with uh, strider. Again, not any, uh, every strider is croup. And uh, not every strider is, uh, 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 can be relieved by uh, albuterol or racemic epinephrine. So you need to be aware of uh, certain conditions and pathologies which may cause uh, paralysis of uh, vocal cords, particularly in small infants. If, the, if an infant has some CNS abnormalities, uh, may have an undiagnosed hydrocephalus, may have Arnold Chiari malformation, um, uh, may have history of birth trauma. trauma. And so the, the comorbidity of uh, uh, your patient may give you a clue to the underlying uh, uh, airway pathology, which uh, you may have to deal with it. 
this is a patient with the laryngeal, laryngeal cleft, which uh, obviously presented with a history of aspirational respiratory distress. And uh, you see that uh, there is a defect, uh, defective wall. There is no wall between uh, uh, vocal cords and arytenoid folds. And uh, this, these patients may present with uh, uh, strider, cyanosis, uh, massive aspirations and uh, recurrent infections. So the esophagus and the trachea are connected. Are connected. Portion, how far down? It's, it's connected, and uh, so those protective uh, uh, reflexes, which prevent on a regular basis food from getting aspirated to the lungs, are no longer there, and there's a constant connection during the eating and swallowing. Patient will swallow food and uh, into his or her lungs. Uh, this is a glottic web. Uh, you see the, uh, the membrane, which has uh, basically obscured the vocal cords. This patient may present with, uh, uh, may present with uh, strider and respiratory distress. Obviously, it's a surgical uh, uh, case. However, uh, you may not know. You may not find out until you get to it, and you will see by with yourself, with your eyes, that this is that this is what it is. So, so the cords there are partially. They are they are immobile. Uh, so these these patients are also prone to aspirations, and may or may not present with strider and respiratory distress secondary to aspiration or or pneumonia. Uh, this is actually not uncommon. This has not been uncommon. This was one, a case. Uh, maybe two or three years ago over at Chalk. This is a patient with uh, capillary hemangioma uh, on the surface. Uh, so this patient is prone to have or has high incidence of having what we call subglottic hemangioma. Uh, you see the uh, uh, area right before the vocal cords is uh, pre-significantly uh, 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 outgrown and uh, obscures uh, the airway and may cause strider, respiratory distress, and obviously uh, a difficult case for intubation. Uh, this is a trachea, uh, which has been under uh, pressure, external pressure, by a vascular ring. Uh, this patient may also present with uh, strider and wheezy. Uh, these are the things that uh, uh, happen, and it's very specific to pediatric medicine. And this is a vascular ring. This is on the bronchoscopy uh, uh, visual field. When you see the, this anterior um, or posterior compression of the trachea, and this is the barium swallow on the same patient, which you see uh, anterior identation of uh, of trachea. Who can tell me what is th this diagnostic of? This is vascular ring, right? What kind of vascular ring? Which one? It's diagnostic, and you may get question on your board. 
double aortic arch. Double aortic arch is at pulmonary artery sling are the two fairly common causes of vascular ring. Double aortic arch is when uh, you have both right aortic arch and left aortic arch will create a circumferential surrounding around the trachea and uh, esophagus will cause posterior indentation on the barium swallow uh, versus uh, uh, pulmonary artery sling, which is uh, abnormal origin of the left pulmonary artery from right pulmonary artery, co comes in between trachea and uh, in between trachea and uh, esophagus, causes anterior <coughs> indentation of the is uh, barium swallow. So if you have posterior indentation of barium swallow, you have double aortic arch, and if, if you have anterior indentation of the barium swallow, you have pulmonary artery sling. Obviously, uh, they need surgical uh, excision and treatment. Uh, so I, th th those were some of the uh, interesting and specific patho pathologies peculiar to pediatric airway. Um, knowing that and giving you some the background reason to be a little bit more uh, conscientious about the pediatric airway, we get into uh, some of the physiology uh, and then pathophysiology uh, and some of the mechanical ventilatory uh, support that we provide to our pediatric, pediatric patients. We'll be talking about indications, basic anatomy, physiology, modes of ventilation, uh, selection of mode, common problems, and uh, winning and extubation from the ventilator. You may not end up needing all these uh, uh, informations and skills in the emergency room settings. However, if you rotate in different wards and different uh, uh, floors like uh, trauma, ICU, uh, MICU, PICU end up needing uh, knowing, uh, knowing to know all these aspects of uh, ventilatory support. Respiratory failure is very common in pediatrics. Uh, again, 50%, uh, over 50% of the reason why a pediatric patient gets admitted to the ICU is due to respiratory distress, either uh, distress or failure. So. Uh, very common, and uh, they're very prone to going into failure for a variety of reasons that we will touch later on the next few slides. Um, so, indications for uh, mechanical ventilation is obviously number one, respiratory failure. We will be talking about uh, respiratory failure, cardiac failure. Uh, we intubate uh, and take away uh, work of breathing uh, in cardiac patients a lot of times, uh, not only uh, help the cardiac, to help to improve the cardiac output by eliminating work of breathing, but also, again, if the patient is having a weak uh, heart, weak myocardium, uh, we improve, uh, uh, basically, uh, cardiac output by eliminating or decreasing the afterload or wall stress tension by just intubating the patient. A lot of times we intubate the patient for uh, neurologic uh, reasons. The patient who comes in in an emergency setting with trauma, head trauma, meningitis, encephalitis, variety of uh, uh, 
uh, neuropathologies, uh, several bleed, we will intubate them to protect the airway and to provide uh, adequate ventilation and oxygenations. The basic anatomy upper airway uh, kids, uh, if you remember the, the slides uh, which I showed you uh, previously, they have a small, they have small jaw, they have small oral cavity, they have a big tongue, and, uh, and they have very cephalid upper airway. What do, do I mean by cephalid upper airway? Um, uh, it's not been, uh, cephalid upper airway means that Uh, the, the, the glottis and, uh, is generally on an, on an infant is at the level of C1, C2, so it's a very high up. So in order for you to be able to visualize the glottis and vocal cords, you need to really uh, uh, create a maneuver to be able to expose the uh, glottis and, uh, at a high level. In a child, the, the glot is at the level of C2, C3, or C4. And in an adult patient, a glot is at, at the level of C5 or C, C6. So in an adult patient, the moment you open up the mouth and put your blade into the mouth, you're able to line your uh, visual field with the, uh, with the uh, upper airway and the vocal cords very easily. Versus in an infant in particular, you need to really uh, know that you need to make some maneuvers and practice and gain some skills, be able to see the vocal cords in order to be able to intubate. So we <coughs> it's important uh, to remember uh, these anatomy differences. The other thing, uh, um, so that's the upper airway, which is a little bit more trickier, and then uh, th th some of the pathologies that we... Uh, uh, talked about, and you saw some of those, some of the slides. And then lower airway, uh, we have obviously uh, major conducting airways and respiratory bronchioles and alveoli, which uh, all can be uh, undergone disease process and may create problem uh, for your patients. The nearest point uh, on an upper airway in an a pediatric patient is generally cricoid cartilage, which is right below the vocal cords, versus in adult, the narrowest part is at the vocal cord level. So this actually uh, uh, is an important uh, t technical skill that you need to know. You need to know that even if you pass through the vocal cords, your ET tube, that doesn't guarantee that you've gone through the trachea. Remember that the uh, the nearest point is generally uh, uh, in the cricoid or right be below the vocal cords. And you see the infants, premature babies, extremists coming to the ED with, with respiratory distress, and you end up intubating, you find them to be difficult to intubate, and they have subglottic snows. They're very prone to have subglottic snows and to have difficult intubation. So you, we need to be aware of that trick Vocal cord, fine. You see the vocal cord, but doesn't guarantee that you can enter the, tr uh, be able to get through subglottic area and into trachea without difficulty. Uh, 
we basically uh, create uh, a gradient. There's a gradient between mouth and floor space, and that's the driving pressure uh, and the, of the uh, any uh, flow that needs to get into the alveoli. And uh, we need to overcome the air resistance and keep the alveoli open. And uh, <coughs> again, uh, kids are disproportionate. They have a, a larger tongue. Uh, they lose uh, uh, their tone during the sleep, particularly during sedations uh, and uh, during CNS uh, dysfunctions. Again, uh, if you uh, remember the larynx, uh, it's high and anterior in infant. Uh, it's middle level at the C3 level in a six-month-old. And in an adult patient, obviously, it's much easier at the level of C5, C6. So it's much more cephalid in an infant than in an adult. Um, the uh, kids, you know, eat particular infants are, have a very uh, compliant uh, or pliant chest wall. And actually, that puts them in, in uh, disadvantage to maintain their FRC. You see, if uh, babies, you uh, sedate the baby or they go under anesthesia, they quickly uh, dis desaturate. They have a minimal reserve. Why? Because their FRC, I'm sure you, what, you know what FRC is, is below their uh, closing capacity of their small airways. And so what happens, the chest wall, which generally FRC or functional residual capacity is when you have zero flow uh, at the end of expiration, meaning that your chest wall, which have a tendency to move outward, and your lungs, which have a tendency to move inward, come to into a balance. That's called FRC. And in infants, the chest wall, since chest wall is so pliant and compl compliant, doesn't have the ability to keep to move outward, and therefore doesn't move outward enough or adequately. And so the airways are always closed. So if the lungs, if the lungs, if the patient is sedated, so that ability is even more impaired. The patient loses the FRC or loses their uh, capability to keep the airway open, and uh, FRC uh, loses the FRC, and the patient will be apneic or will desaturate, and will lead to the pathophysiology. They have uh, their the ribs are more horizontal, and they. they their uh, diaphragm inserts more horizontally. Again, that puts them into disadvantage in terms of when to expand uh, uh, chest wall and lungs during uh, inspiration. And their respiratory muscles uh, uh, have a tendency to fatigue, uh, and uh, uh, particularly so they cannot sustain long period of uh, increased respiratory load. This is uh, what I was trying to explain to you uh, what happens uh, during uh, what FRC basically is. Uh, there is a balance between uh, outward movement of the chest and inward movement of uh, long, both lungs at zero flow point, and that is called FRC. And um, kids have uh, their FRC because of the compliant chest wall is below their closing capacity, and they have uh, they're very prone to atelectasis, uh, 
uh, secretions when they cannot breathe adequately, like they go under anesthesia, they get sedated, they desats because of this phenomenon. Uh, again, uh, same thing, uh, their airway collapses uh, easily because uh, lower clo uh, closing capacity is, uh, FRC is below their closing capacity and uh, generally they have low uh, specific lung compliance. The lung compliance is decreased but the ch ch chest, com chest wall comp compliance is increased. And this is the why, uh, another reason why uh, they have a tendency to uh, have more atelectasis is because they don't have this collateral uh, between alveoli that we normally have. And so al alveoli basically cannot send uh, flow oxygen to one another and they have a tendency to collapse, called collateral, collateral channels of ventilation. Uh, they're deficient. Signs of uh, respiratory distress uh, are pretty uh, uh, known and uh, uh, everybody is aware of those signs and symptoms. Obviously, uh, tachypnea, tachycardia, strider, and wheezing, all those uh, things uh, can can be signs of respiratory distress uh, and failure. This is the lung compliance. Uh, uh, tells you the uh, what is lung compliance, which is basically what you put pressure. You expect to get some volume change in your lungs. So pressure volume change per pressure change is called lung compliance. And remember, lung and chest wall have two different compliance and at the end we talking we talk about total lung comp compliance which is combination of lung and chest wall the bottom line is this lung compliance and pressure volume care helps helps us a lot when we manage a patient on the ventilator everything we do on the ventilator is essentially based on lung compliance and and uh, pressure volume relationship uh, ventilation uh, uh, essentially, or pump function of the respiration is to get rid of uh, PCO2, and PCO2 is co being constantly, constantly produced and depends on the metabolic activity of the cells, as well as how well we can get rid of them uh, through our uh, uh, alveolar ventilation. And uh, <coughs> we have uh, alveolar uh, make uh, minute ventilation, uh, which is uh, respiratory rate multiplied by our tidal volume will give you the minute ventilation. We have effective tidal volume. Uh, again, remember what, whatever you decide, whatever you're trying to deliver to your patient, your patient may not get that amount of volume. Uh, there are some of the volume lost through the circuit of the ventilator, some of the volume may be lost through the dead space. And whatever is richest to the alveolar is called tide, effective tidal volume. Basically, what we measure is the effective tidal, tidal volume, not what we deliver to the patient. Uh, <coughs> again, uh, minute ventilation is uh, amount of gas, obviously, uh, which is delivered to the alveolar. And uh, alveolar O2 
uh, is generally higher than the arterial O2, as you may know, based on this equation. And generally, we have a gradient of 5 to 15 between our alveolar O2 and arterial PO2. And we use that index, in the index as a O2 gradient quite frequently when we are managing a, our patients on the ventilator. Uh, we use that index as an uh, as index of uh, severity of lung disease, uh, which uh, can be helpful in deciding if our patient is getting better or is not getting better. So it's a very important uh, tool to know and to understand uh, what that is. So ventilation and pump function of the uh, lung uh, not related uh, to the lung parenchyma at all. So if you are dealing with the pump situation or pump impairment, uh, basically our main problem is uh, CO2 elimination, not necessarily problem with PO2. There are certain diseases that may cause just pump failure and have nothing to do with the lung parenchyma leading to respiratory failure. Example would be a patient with a severe head injury who is hypoventilating, a patient with glamboree, a patient with, uh, let's say, ankylosing spondylitis of the chest wall, uh, rigid chest wall. So it has nothing to do with the lungs. The problem is pump is not able to generate adequate mid ventilation. So patient will have what we call type 2 respiratory failure, meaning problem with only PCO2 elimination. The second type of uh, respiratory uh, failure is when we are having problem with our oxygenation, and that's called hypoxic uh, respiratory failure. Hypoxic respiratory, respiratory failure is when we are having a problem, uh, in, have, we're having long parenchymal problem due to a variety of reasons. One of them would be VQ mismatching, which is the most common cause of oxygenation failure or hypoxia. VQ mismatching can be caused by atelectasis, pulmonary edema, pulmonary contusion, uh, lobar pneumonia, anything but asthma, anything that impairs uh, or, or uh, un make it supply of blood perfusion to oxygenation impaired will give you VQ mismatch. The second uh, Im important cause of hypoxia in uh, pulmonary medicine, critical care medicine, is shunt, intraparenchymal shunt, which is the other end uh, spectrum of VQ mismatching. So shunt is you're not basically perfusing, um, you're not basically perfusing part of the lungs. However, that part of the lung is getting ventilated and so you have dead space ventilation and uh, intrapulmonary shunt. The diffusion is third cause of uh, diffusion impairment, third cause of uh, oxygenation impairment, and that is when there is a uh, there is a barrier uh, between your uh, alveolar epithelium and uh, uh, and capillary endothelium. Generally, there is a very thin film or membrane which 
does not create any resistance. However, in certain disease state, i.e. sarcoidosis in adult, or some of the uh, interstitial pneumonia, pneumonitis like adenovirus or mycoplasma that we see in kids, just affect or affect that part of the parenchyma, that membrane, so creates a barrier so that oxygen cannot really traverse easily from, tr from the alveoli into the capillary. You have a situation with hypoxia and uh, low PO2 as a result of that. And hypoventilation, eventually, I said hypoventilation initially causes a uh, problem with PCO2 el elimination, but if hypoventilation, just like a patient you have on morphine, get, getting too much narcotics, okay, it's not breathing. If you do a blood gas on that patient, your first PCO2 would be high, your PO2 is generally normal. If you pay no attention to that patient, come back and repeat your blood gas and provide no support for that patient, this time, not only your PCO2 is elevated, but your PO2 is diminished. And uh, that is based on what we call alveolar gas equation. Alveolar gas equation, it means that there's certain uh, uh, constant volume of alveoli uh, which uh, has, a PCO, has CO2, O2, and nitrogen. If the PCO2 uh, uh, fills up that space, there will be no room for PO2, and eventually any patient with pump failure will end up having problem with oxygenation. Again, uh, the differences, uh, we talked about uh, they have lower FRC than clo closing capacity, they have lower diffusion capacity, they have increased O2 consumption, and newborn babies up until, up until they're two years of age, they have lower PO2. So when you do a blood gas on a pediatric patient, don't expect to have a PO2 100. So you should be, if a normal, normal four-week-old infant comes to you and you get a PO2 of 75, arterial PO2 of 75 or 80, should be happy because that's what normally they do. And so, so it's not until eight or 10 years of age when they acquire adult values of uh, blood gases. Uh, we talked about rib cages. Uh, they have uh, the, the disadvantage because of the uh, angle of uh, ribs attachment, and also because uh, there are more cartilage, cart, uh, more cart cartilage in it rather than bone. They're more pliant, and they generate less. Uh, they generate less negative pressure, uh, and uh, will lead to uh, decreased. Uh, FRC and increased closing volume, closing capacity. Hyperventilation and VQ mismatch are the most common cause of abnormal gas exchange in the pediatric IC. You have seen it and you know that uh, if you have a patient with uh, any number of reason causes, uh, uh, they may develop hypoxia and uh, low PO2 and apnea, hypoventilation, also may lead to PO, uh, hypoxia based on what I just explained, alveolar gas equation. But initially, you may have just problem with. So if you have a patient with apnea comes to you and you have problem both with PO2 and PCO2, you, you know that the problem is long, long-lasting problem. It has, it's, it's more than just uh, happened to be uh, 
happening acu acutely. Uh, <coughs> what we do uh, with mechanical ventilation, we provide basically uh, minute ventilation, we provide oxygen, and we try to uh, buy time uh, until the underlying disease process is resolved. Again, uh, we've learned a lot about how to manage uh, patients on the ventilator over the last 10, 15 years that we didn't know before, and a lot of uh, iatrogenic <coughs> uh, causes of uh, uh, mechanical ventilatory support is no longer there, or we know how to basically avoid causing iatrogenic uh, problems. And the reason is uh, we are much gentler and uh, 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 with the ventilator and we accept uh, abnormal blood gases uh, for the, uh, uh, to, be, uh, to, to, to be less aggressive with the lung and basically uh, allow time for uh, lung pathology to resolve. But ventilator in pediatrics essentially uh, uh, is the same as in adult. Again, nothing really has changed in the principle of ventilatory support over the last 30 years. Uh, we, have, uh, we have basically two things that we need to worry about. Number one is the mode of ventilatory support, what kind of mode we want our patients to be on. And number two, what kind of breath, breathe. Uh, we want our patient to be on. That's it, and there is basically a combination of uh, fancy uh, additions to the ventilator which uh, does not really change our approach to the ventilatory support of our uh, pediatric patients. Uh, <clears throat> things that we, uh, we do uh, and we need to uh, be aware of and things that we can manipulate and set on our ventilator are peak inspiratory pressure. Uh, when we are talking about peak, peak inspiratory pressure, remember it's the total pressure. The nomenclature has, has changed. It used to be uh, meaning that when we were talking about peak inspiratory pressure, we were talking about the, the driving pressure. Uh, uh, and driving pressure was the difference between what you set on the pressure and minus your peak. But nowadays, that has changed to the total pressure. So we, when we are talking about PIP, peak inspiratory pressure, it means uh, the driving pressure plus PEEP. And uh, we generally set our pressure above PEEP, depending on our pathology we're dealing with. And uh, we, we like to follow our mean air pressure as a way of knowing how well are we, uh, we are oxygenating our patient. So, uh, we use CPAP as a mode, and uh, we have uh, I-time, E-time, depending on the breath type, and ventilator, we set any number of these uh, parameters, and uh, we essentially uh, are making sure that we provide tidal volume of not, not more than 6 to 8 cc per kilo uh, per breath. So when we are talking about mode, so when you set any, so when you place any patient on the ventilator, you ask the respiratory therapist, or the respiratory therapist asks you, what kind of mode? What mode do you want your patient to be on? Essentially, we have two modes. We have either assist mode or SINV mode. And that's the first thing that you need to know. So 
SIMV mode uh, is the uh, synchronized intermittent mechanical ventil ventilation, meaning that uh, patient is able to breathe in between. So non-mechanical breath are not supported by, uh, by the ventilator uh, versus uh, uh, assist mode uh, versus assist mode or control mode, uh, not only patient receives mechanical ventilator, but the, ve the, 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 uh, the mechanical breath, the non-mechanical breath also has been supported by positive pressure ventilation. So that's the big difference between assist mode and SIMV. So in assist mode, uh, every breath is being mechanically supported, either totally or partially. Versus in SIMV, only the uh, mechanical breath are being supported. And a patient is able to breathe uh, in between. The pressure support uh, can be applied to SIMV, can be applied by itself to the patients on a spontaneous breath. Basically, is, uh, is the pressure that you provide, the, the ventilator provide to the patient, and patient controls their own uh, tidal volume and their own breathing uh, rate. And uh, the, the idea behind pressure support is to uh, give patients some support so patient doesn't get tired in, uh, when they, they try to breathe in and try to overcome the airway and ET tube uh, resistance. So is a way of uh, uh, supporting the patient, which can be uh, supplemented to the SINV or can be given by itself. So when we're talking, so that's the mode that you choose, SIMV mode or assist mode uh, or CPAP mode. So that's the mode we have. Then the next step would be what kind of breath you, you want your patient to be on, volume breath or pressure breath. And each have advantage and disadvantages. Uh, depending, on, depending on your experience and the set of patients that you're dealing with, uh, if you, uh, you pay attention to lung physiology, if you follow the lung compliance, it really doesn't matter what kind of uh, breath you, you use or you choose uh, for your patient. It, it depends how comfortable you are and how much uh, you are willing to follow the uh, lung physiology. Then you can use any number of uh, breath types. We have, <coughs> if this is the lung compliance, again, uh, that I uh, explained to you earlier. Our goal is to uh, set the ventilator set the pressure such that uh, we provide uh, we provide a adequate uh, compliance. What does it tell you? It means that if you, this is the uh, pressure volume curve uh, during inspiration and expiration. During inspiration, just like, you know, you're trying to open up a balloon, trying to, uh, uh, a balloon, the, the, the initiation of balloon, to blow a balloon up, the, the initial force is much higher. You need to really be forceful at the beginning. Once the balloon is inflated, the pressure required to inflate further is much less. That, that initial pressure that we like to 
put our patient on, basically to open up our patient, is called uh, uh, initiation pressure or I inflection point. You probably will hear that. Uh, it's called lower inflection point. The circuit pressure that, we requ that requires to open up the lungs, the alveoli. And depending on the pathology, maybe a PEEP of 5 or maybe a PEEP of 8, you need to apply that to open up the lungs. And then from then on, uh, it would be much easier to keep the alveoli open until a certain point. Basically, the best place to put your patient on the pressure volume curve is where it's been uh, shown on this diagram, between the lower and higher inflection point. Any, anything above inflection, anything above uh, uh, upper inflection point will decrease your lung compliance and it will decrease oxygenation and ventilation. So you, you want to avoid that. By just looking at the curve on the graphics on the bedside, you can decide, uh, you can actually see if you are delivering adequate volume and pressure to your patient or not. So, the, the shape of this curve is very, very important. So you want to make sure that the alveoli is open and uh, your, your PEEP is above the inflection point and below the upper inflection point. So above the lower inflection point and below the upper inflection point. Like this diagram is showing. Uh, so for, for your patient to be... Uh, uh, to be in that healthy zone, um, then you will be able to, uh, then you can say that you're de delivering adequate uh, uh, volume of pressure to your patients. So this is a pressure volume curve. This is a very important part of uh, understanding of the lung pathophysiology on any patient who is on the ventilator. So pressure volume curve. So any pressure you add, you expect certain volume to be increased in your lungs. If not, then uh, you're having problem with it. The spot is to be, the suit spot to be is on the expiration phases, expiration phase of the volume pressure curve. The, again, the compliance is highest at that uh, limb of the uh, pressure volume curve, and the amount of pressure that you need to apply is much less. Is it clear to you? Any question on this? On this, this is this is an important concept: the pressure volume curve and compliance of the lungs. A anything you do, you increase the pressure. For example, you 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 go to the bedside, you look at the patient. Patient's hypoxic. You need to look at this curve if you have graphics at the side, and you need to be able to manipulate the peep, the tidal volume to bring the curve to the to, to up to to a point where your oxygenation or ventilation improves. This is, this is a very important concept. The graphics nowadays helps a lot. You know, most ventilators have graphics at the bedside. And essentially, pay attention to the graphics. It will give you a lot of good information. This is the difference between a, uh, assist control uh, mode and uh, total, uh, totally controlled uh, Ventilator. The, the, the first line, the upper uh, curve, that initial negative uh, 
negative deflection. On the, look at the first uh, uh, curve, the first uh, waveform. The negative inf inflection is the patient's trying to breathe. The moment the machine senses that and delivers a mechanical breath, correct? Second breath, the same. So first and second breath are started by the patient, completed by the machine. The third waveform is totally delivered by the patient, by, by, the, uh, by the machine. There is no patient's activity or contribution to the breath. So by just looking at the curve or the waveforms or the graphics at the bedside, you can actually know if your patient is breathing or not breathing, and if he's breathing, what kind of uh, breathing patient is getting supported by, and what not. And the amount of volume that patient is receiving, this is very interesting finding. The, it doesn't matter if the patient breathes on his own or get a complete mechanical breath. Get same amount of volume. This is the beauty of assist mode control. So a lot of times if the patient is, you think, is not, is fighting the vent, uh, the moment you switch from SIMV to assist mode, patient becomes more comfortable and their needs will be met. So generally, patient's needs are being met much better on assist mode than SIMV. That's why a lot of places stay away from SIMV and use assist mode until patient's ready to be extubated. Uh, this is a SIMV uh, mode uh, compared to uh, assist mode. In the SIMV mode, you will see the uh, patient is trying to breathe. You see those non-efficient breathing, patient's effort, patient just having an effort, uh, which, is, which goes with very low, long, very low tidal volumes. It only, tidal volume it only improves when patient did, uh, receives a mechanical breath. So that will tell you that this patient is not ready for winning or extubation trial because when patient is breathing on his own, the, uh, the amount of tidal volume that is uh, creating is much less than what is getting through mechanical breath. So again, uh, same thing. Uh, this is a, a volume limited or volume control. When the patient is not breathing, uh, gets adequate volume when the patient is breathing on the SIMV mode is inefficient and not uh, enough for uh, sustaining a spontaneous breathe. So control modes or assist mode, uh, it's generally uh, preferable to SIMV mode, particularly at the beginning of the disease process. Uh, every, page, every patient's breath has been supported by, uh, by the ventilator. Uh, and this synchrony between uh, spontaneous breath and mechanical breath is much more sophisticated than SIMV. So although SIMV, uh, it says your understanding, everybody's understanding is, is has to be synchronized with spontaneous breath, but it's not. And the algorithm that are placed in SIMV is less sophisticated than control. And patients generally on SIMV mode struggle if their needs are not being met. 
Pressure versus volume, uh, again, depending on the uh, disease that you're dealing with, uh, doesn't matter which one you use, uh, as long as you know what are the advantage and uh, disadvantage of each type of breath. Pressure limited, obviously, you control the pressure, uh, you prevent barotrauma. However, the drawback is you have no control over your tidal volume, and your tidal volume may changes according to a patient's uh, mechanics. And so, hour you have a perfect gas. Two hours later, you may not have because the long mechanics mechanics have changed, compliance resistance have changed, and so you have a bad gases. So you have no control over the tidal volume. Versus on the volume, you guarantee patient will receive that amount of tidal volume regardless of lung mechanics. The drawback of the volume uh, control or volume breath is you have no control of your uh, peak, uh, uh, peak uh, inspiratory pressure, and the patient may really uh, suffer from barotrauma. So if the disease is uh, non-significant or patient is intubated for non-pulmonary disease, it's okay to start the patient at volume. But if you are really having a, a lung injury, acute lung injury for a variety of reasons, ARDS, uh, pressure breath would be a safer pre uh, breath for your patients. Again, these are the, uh, some of the drawbacks of each uh, type of breath. The pressure breath, you have no control over your uh, tidal volume uh, and minute ventilation because you set the pressure at certain limit and, uh, and the tidal volume becomes a dependent uh, variable versus on volume uh, you have no control over your pressure again you have to know what you do and if you know what you do then it really doesn't matter uh, which type which uh, type of uh, breath to, to choose as long as you know the physiology you know the graphics at the bedsides and uh, keep everything into the context the trigger, uh, what triggers the uh, breath, you know, patient effort uh, generally is uh, uh, what it triggers a uh, breath, uh, to machine to deliver a mechanical breath. Uh, this uh, patient's effort can be sensed as a change in pressure or change in flow. Now, the modern ventilator are flow, uh, are flow dependent, which is more sensitive to patient's needs than pressure. Pressure uh, uh, drop, meaning that pressure should generate certain negative pressure in order for machine deliver mechanical breath. It's not sensitive enough to uh, patient may not be patient may not be strong enough to generate enough pressure for machine to understand that. Therefore, patient will go into what we call patient ventilator asynchrony versus flow, particularly the constant flow. There is constant flow in, and the moment flow changes. Uh, patients start pulling in, flow opens up, and patients re receive mechanical ventilator, me mechanical breath, and much more tolerable and uh, uh, sensitive. Uh, we talked about pressure support is essentially, essentially the same as a uh, pressure breath. However, uh, patient controls his own or her own tidal volume and respiratory rate. Uh, can be given just by it. So you can put the patient on pressure support and no breath, period. If you know we have bad case of asthma on the ventilator, the best approach would be just leave the patient on pressure support and no other support, no no other uh, settings. You can also add pressure support to SIV. And my, our recommendation is any patient who is on 
SINV mode needs to be on pressure support. Again, remember, if you remember the graphics that I showed you earlier, pressure supports help spontaneous breath to be as adequate as mechanical breath on the, assign, uh, on the SINV mode. So any patient on SINV mode should be on pressure support. We have uh, some luxury uh, forms of uh, providing ventilatory support, which is, uh, we call it advanced, uh, advanced breath types, particularly PRVC. PRVC is not that advanced anymore. I'm sure you've used PRVC uh, uh, quite often here at UCI. Uh, it's very uh, common nowadays, and basically you have uh, beauty of the both words. It provides pressure control flow pattern uh, with a volume guarantee. So if you set the pressure at a certain limit, and you set the volume at a certain limit, and patient basically receives guaranteed volume within that set pressure. So the best, way, best uh, type of... Uh, uh, ventilatory support now nowadays is PRVC. Uh, it's, it's very easy to handle. You don't have to worry about the minute ventilation or tidal volume or high pressure. And it's just a very smooth way of uh, managing the patient on the ventilator. In particular, in particular, there's not time enough to talk about all the differences between pressure and volume. We like pressure uh, control ventilation because of the flow pattern. The flow pattern is the key. The flow pattern on the pressure control is decelerating type. Decelerating type versus on the volume control is a square wave type. You've seen it on the ventilator. And uh, the decelerating pattern is, is more uh, uh, is more friendlier to the lung uh, when you have a disease like acute lung injury or ARDS, when you have inhomogeneous disease process. It allows time for different areas of the lungs with different time constant to fill in and to fill out based on the flow pattern. So it's, it's a prefer, preferable uh, method of uh, providing ventilation when you have acute lung injury or ARDS if you go by uh, pressure control or PRVC versus volume control. Inverse IE ratio, we use it sometimes in advanced stages of ARDS when basically you increase your I time, you decrease your E time. By increasing the I time, you uh, improve your time constant ventilation, hoping that you improve oxygenation. And uh, we have a fairly new uh, method of uh, mechanical ventilatory support or breath type. It's called a, uh, airway pressure release ventilation. I don't know if have you ever seen or have you ever done airway pressure release ventilation. It's a little bit uh, uh, trickier to um, really have. We don't use it that often. In, sometimes in advanced stages of ARDS, when you cannot ventilate the oxygen of the patient, we may use airway pressure release ventilation, which is basically a version of IE ratio, uh, reverse IE ratio pressure control ventilation. High frequency, we use it quite frequently in pediatric ARDS uh, it, as a rescue type th therapy. It's not a type of ventilator that you use right off the bat. Uh, 
on any patient with respiratory failure. You use it when basically you've hit the wall and you have no other way to go. It's a very good uh, uh, method, uh, way of uh, providing oxygenations. Again, PRVC, we talked about it. Volume, volume support is uh, another new, uh, new version uh, of uh, brick types that some of the ventilators, new ventilators provide. Basically, it's just like uh, pressure support with guaranteed volume. Uh, it's a very good uh, way of uh, winning the patient from ventilator. The airway pressure release ventilation uh, is a sophisticated uh, type of uh, breath types. Basically, two CPAP, CPAP during inspiration and CPAP during expiration. Uh, and in between, patient can breathe. Uh, it's just like reverse IE ratio with the difference that you don't have to paralyze the patient. Patient can breathe in between. Again, improve oxygenation uh, by improving um, lung volume and FRC. IE ratio, when your IE ratio greater than one, can improve oxygenation by increasing mean, mean airway pressure, but the drawback of this uh, airway is may cause hemodynamic instability, shock, and patient has to be paralyzed heavily because it's very, very uncomfortable. High frequency oscillation, isolation, uh, we use it very often in pediatrics. Uh, it's totally different uh, concept and uh, uh, and so if you rotate in PICU, and recently in adult ICU, they started using, they learned it from us, and they started using uh, oscillator on ARDS in adult patients as well. So it's a, it's, a, it's a different concept. It's basically you generate mean airway pressure, and you keep the mean, mean airway pressure at a certain level, and that inflation, de deflation that we see with conventional vent no longer exists, and that helps learn to recover faster. It's a, it's a very, uh, uh, at times, uh, uh, helpful uh, mode of uh, mechanical support. Um, then we have a bunch of uh, non-invasive uh, positive pressure ventilation uh, for a variety of uh, conditions. Actually, I have to tell you that, you know, by, by using uh, non-invasive BiPAP or CPAP, really we avoid uh, a lot of intubations and we have seen it, uh, particularly in uh, immunocompromised patients. And studies have shown immunocompromised patients, if you start them early on, uh, on non-invasive uh, ventilation, like BiPAP, you actually prevent certain number of them from getting uh, uh, tired and requiring intubation. So it's a good, good way of, uh, you have an asthma, who is in working hard and is on the verge of uh, going into respiratory failure is a good way of uh, uh, preventing that, that, that to happen. So we use that, we use that quite often. What we do uh, on a pressure limit, my pref our preference in pediatric uh, ICU is pressure limit breath, pressure control breath. We, obviously, we set the FiO2 rate, and we set the uh, uh, driving pressure and the rest basically is a dependent variable. And uh, we, we are worried about our barotrauma. So by pressure limiting, we sort of like control our barotrauma. <coughs> we like to keep the pressure less than 35. Remember, plateau pressure, not the peak, not the driving pressure, plateau pressure. We like to keep the plateau pressure less than 35. Uh, and by, by 
placing the patient on pressure limit, we can, prov we can uh, ensure that. The volume, uh, you set the tidal volume uh, and, 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 and flow rate, and the rest essentially becomes uh, uh, dependent variables, uh, which can change according to, according to long mechanics. Again, settings in our pre-standard, uh, you start from low uh, and work your way up according to the disease state that you have to deal with. Uh, you can use AC or SIMV with pressure, with pressure support. Either is fine. Uh, my personal preference uh, is AC. Uh, however, if you use SIMV with pressure support, that can be as good as AC. And the, and the rest is basically, your patient will tell you what else needs to be done. Uh, if you're dealing with a uh, uh, problem of oxygenations like acute lung injury, ARDS type uh, picture, you need to concentrate on your mean arterial, mean airway pressure, and how can you improve your mean airway pressure by increasing the PEEP, by increasing the eye time, and sometimes by increasing the driving pressure. On the volume, on, on the volume type breath, uh, you can improve your oxygenation uh, by uh, increasing the tidal volume and rate and peep. So the tidal volume is varies on the, on the volume breath, the pressure varies. So to improve oxygenation, you, like I said, you improve peep, I time, PIP, and, and, and the same thing um, uh, on the volume. We all know what PEEP does. <coughs> uh, basically improves the FRC, FRC uh, uh, opens up the lungs, and keep the, keep the alveoli open. Uh, we all know the complications of PEEP, so too much PEEP is not good. It can decrease the compliance of the lung, can drop your... Uh, hemodynamics and cardiac output and can be actually detrimental to overall uh, well-being of your patient. So you need to s find the right peak for your patient. Again, if something is wrong with your patient, something is not working, you have to really look at your patient, listen to the patient, and look everything into the context, bring everything into the context before uh, making a decision about changing the ventilator or changing the set settings. And again, remember that whenever you are in doubt, you're at the bedside, middle of the night, in the ER, patient is not getting better, the tube is in, patient is on the ventilator, desatting, not improving, disconnect, uh, try to handbag, uh, try to look at the uh, ET tube, visualize the ET tube, see if it's in or not. Basic things always, you know, uh, most of the times, there's something like with the basics. So if you guys stick to the basics, you can always um, com uh, come out uh, uh, victorious and uh, uh, able to uh, solve the problem. So ABC always the key. Disconnect the patient, so handbagging the patient. You cannot bag the patient. Check the ET tube. Uh, maybe ET tube is clogged. Suction the ET tube. And then try to play the vent settings and uh, other things. By having entire CO2 monitoring nowadays, you know, a lot of times we don't even bother looking into the airway. 
to see if the ET tube is in or not. We just put a PD cap, capnogram uh, 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 on, and we look at the uh, uh, color change or, or look at the waveforms on the monitor to see if our ET tube is in or not. Uh, and again, uh, once you've done the basics, uh, then look at, look at your patient's disease state. Maybe the support that you're providing through the ventilator is not adequate. Your patient needs more support. Uh, maybe some, some complications of ventilation or intubation, i.e. pneumothoraces, uh, air leak, pneumomedestinum. Those are the things that uh, you need to be aware of on any patient. Again, the risk of morbidity and, and mortality increases significantly on any patient who goes on the ventilator. So it's not a safe uh, device or procedure that we do. We, we do it because we have to. Uh, but it comes with some, obviously, uh, price that we need to be aware of and be able to deal with the complications. Uh, Patient-ventilator interaction is an important concept. Like We hear that all the time that patient is fighting the vent. If the patient is fighting the vent, there's something wrong. And uh, you need to look into it. it. Generally, most of the time, is a trigger sensitivity problem. It means the ventilator is not sensitive enough, is, is not sensitive enough to sense the patient's demand. And so it's delayed on releasing flow. So patients try to overcome by breathing in between and leads that to patient tiredness in his work of breathing. And other times, uh, the synchrony uh, between uh, patient breath and mechanical breath may, may not be in, in sync and basically uh, overlap, and that will lead to increased work of breathing that you need to sort it out. By looking at the graphics uh, at the bedside, uh, that will give you a lot of information about what is, what is that you have to do to improve patient ventilator synchrony. Uh, again, uh, tr troubleshooting, uh, you have to be done this. You have to really uh, taking care of uh, multiple patients on the ventilator with different disease pathologies to really get to understand uh, what are the steps that you need to take in order to uh, improve patients' ventilation and oxygenation. Certain things that you can do, simple things, increase the rate, increase the pressure, uh, increase the PEEP. However, if you uh, have insight into the pathophysiology of lung, then you know they have to be aware of the pressure volume curve or comp lung compliance, and keep that into consideration when you're changing uh, settings on your patients. And again, pay attention to your patient as, 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 as a whole, not just the respiratory. Look at the cardiac function, look at the hemodynamic oxygen delivery, that sort of things, uh, uh, to be able to uh, exactly find out why your patient is not improving on the ventilator. Again, be aware of this uh, permissive hypercapnia. We're no longer looking for normal gases. Uh, so we accept high CO2, we accept lower PO2 in order to provide less of uh, pressure, less of uh, uh, detrimental things to our, law, to our patients. And by doing this, we have decreased the incidence of iatrogenic lung significantly. And really, the, the mortality of ARDS, which was 70% up to 10, 15 years ago, is not down to, in pediatrics, around 25 to 30% in adult, 40, 45%. 
So we've done significantly better. We're doing significantly better. And for your information, the only thing, the only thing that really has shown to affect mortality in ARDS is, who knows, the only thing that was in New England Journal of Medicine 10 years ago, 12 years ago, the only, uh, I would say, uh, intervention that have changed uh, to affect mortality and outcome is low tidal volume of 6 cc per kilo, which was uh, uh, published in, in the landmark study of uh, uh, ARDS network 12 year, now 12 years ago, which showed 22% risk reduction on patients of mortality on patients who received low tidal volume. Apart from that, there's really no other studies to, to, sh to prove, to show that, you know, th these are the reasons why we are doing better. The reasons why we are doing better because we are basically learning pieces from different aspects and we learn more insight over time and we are much more gentle, gentler with our machine and accepting much abnormal blood gases. We basically allowing time for patient get better on its, his or her own. Basically, we buy time. That's what we learn. We buy time for our patients. The patient is having problem with oxygenation. You know, we use it prone. Again, prone position, you, when you rotate in the SI, in ICUs, one of the ICUs, you will see patients with advanced ARDS who are not getting better to be prone there quite frequently. And it shows really, the moment you prone the patient, oxygenation improves. Uh, however, it has not shown to improve to have any survival benefits. But we do that because it helps the patient. Again, it improves oxygenation, it may improve mortality only in a subset of patients who are the sickest ARDS patients. So a meta-analysis of adult ARDS patient showed that prone position actually has some survival uh, uh, benefits if they are the sickest group of patients. So it has some uh, place in our management of patients who are having uh, advanced stage of ARDS. This is a CAT scan of the patient with ARDS. It's, again, it's inhomogeneous disease process. And when, when we prone the patient, basically when patient is supine, the, the uh, uh, posterior and inferior parts of the lungs are athletic. They don't, they're, they get perfused, but they don't get ventilated. We prone, when we prone the patient, we basically redistribute the flow, the edema, improve the uh, uh, FRC, and that how, that's how we improve oxygenation of the patients. This meta-analysis of 10 randomized control study concluded that there was a survival benefit in this most severely affected patients with ARS, meaning that PO2 FiO2 of less, less than 100. And it showed improved uh, survival uh, uh, benefit. So, so it's something that we use, and we use it quite often. We use a nitric oxide. I don't know if you, you, in your emergency room you have a nitric oxide or not, but we use it all the time in the, I, in, in the ICU for a variety of reasons, including um, 
including uh, uh, ARDS. It's a it's a very it's a selective uh, vasodilator of the pulmonary vasculature. So if you have a VQ mismatching, meaning that uh, you're not delivering adequate flow, you're not perfusing parts of the lungs, but you're ventilating those parts of parts of lung by putting the patient on nitric oxide, you vasodilate and you perfuse, and as a result, you get oxygenation. Uh, and uh, you improve oxygenations. So we use it all the time, but again, like prone, prone positioning hasn't really shown to improve the outcome. It, however, shows the moment you place the patient on IO, it improves oxygenation, but again, does not improve the outcome. It's something that we have and we use it, and um, we see some immediate response, but whether it translates into outcome or not, we, we really don't know at this point. Um, again, uh, same thing. Uh, it, it improves oxygenation, and however, it may not have uh, uh, effect on the outcome. Again, it, it didn't show outcome improvement. Uh, but uh, certainly improves oxygenations. Another thing that we have is a surfactant. Time. Okay. Uh, to wrap up this, uh, so another thing that we have is a surfactant uh, that uh, you are aware of using it in uh, infant respiratory distress syndrome. They brought that into ARDS, the acute lung injury. We use it now in uh, kids with RSV who are severely hypoxic, it showed some uh, uh, outcome benefits. They use it in adult ARDS as well. Not much success, but it's something that we have and we can use. Uh, again, same thing. Uh, we talked about the uh, complications of any patient who's underventilated. We need to be aware of all the complications, including sin sinusitis, uh, sedation problems, para uh, myopathy, critical care, and, uh, neuropathy. All those things uh, can happen on any patient who goes underventilator. The winning process, uh, again, once the disease process is improved or has imp uh, uh, is improving, you can start winning the patient. And, and uh, when the patient is ready, uh, uh, do the extubation readiness test and extubate the patient. And I'm going to stop there. And if uh, there's any questions, any comments? Great. Sorry. It was a lot of information, but... Uh, yeah, yeah, for sure. Thank you very much. You're welcome. All right, guys, let's do like stretch slash individual snap and break. We'll get Dr. Turner loaded up here and then we'll uh, move right along. Yeah, absolutely. Thanks a lot, Dr. Julie. Hey, nice welcome. to have the Thank you very much. I really appreciate it.
Thank you.